We've moved in our series through um, a survey of the Bible into the poetic literature. Uh, We spent some time doing the historical stuff. Now we're in five books that are called the poetic books. And I want to take a moment just to to highlight something. Uh, This past week I read this book. Um, uh, It's called Brief Insights on Mastering the Bible. And I would highly recommend this. This is a fantastic book. If you only have one book, um, I still think the best book out there is the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible by Danny Hayes uh, and Scott Duvall. That's the best resource you can get. It's big and it's a hardback. But I really loved reading this book. Um, it's by Michael Heiser. Michael Heiser is actually famous for some other stuff that he's written about um, the unseen world. And, and actually, I really like what Heiser writes. I just don't know if I can talk about it without sounding like a heretic. So don't read his other stuff. It's, it's a bit confusing and highbrow, but fascinating. But do get this book. Uh, it's called Brief Insights on Mastering the Bible, 80 Expert Insights Explained in a Single Minute. It's 80 chapters that are really just two pages. You can read them in a minute. And as I read through this book, I thought, I wish I had written this. In, in, no, actually what I thought was, he writes it so much better than I would have written it. Um, this is such a great read. I, I really, really found myself resonating and finding everything he said presented well, quickly, um, in a very, very helpful way. I highly, highly recommend Brief Insights on Mastering the Bible. Uh, one of the, the articles out at the Connection Center is written, um, is out of this book, but I, I highly recommend this as a resource. I'm trying to resource you uh, not only with the messages, but with, uh, with other things. As we're working through the poetic books, the poetic books are different in the Bible. They're not like the historical books where I had maps and we had hand motions and you're learning chronology. That's not what's going on in these books. These books are written in, in the language of the heart and they're issues of the soul um, so, that, so that you connect at a deeper level. This is not very cognitive. There's a lot of rationality, but these books connect your heart with the heart of God. Um, and, and the books in particular, in the poetic books, are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Four of them are called wisdom books, all of them except Psalms. Psalms is not one of the wisdom books. Um, we're going to get to the primary wisdom book next week in the book of Proverbs. Wisdom um, is, is the, the word in Hebrew for, for wisdom is chokmah, and it has the idea of craftsmanship. It's how to, how to live a well-crafted life. Um, and so the four of these books are, are um, wisdom books. All of them together are poetic because they're, they're language and structure that connect with your heart and your soul. And here's what they present. Um, we've already covered Job. And I really believe Job gives us a theology of suffering and sovereignty. Suffering is the context, but it doesn't really explain why they're suffering. The answer to suffering is recognizing the sovereignty of God. And that's what Job does. It gives us a theology of suffering with the answer of God's sovereignty. The Psalms that we're going to look at today is a theology of worship, prayer, and praise. In every element of life, how you worship, you pray, how you praise God. What we'll look at next week is Proverbs, and again, that word for craftsmanship. It's the theology of a well-crafted life in every area. That's what Proverbs gives us. Ecclesiastes, a little bit more of a philosophical book, is a theology of a search for meaning. If you're trying to figure out what the meaning of life is, Ecclesiastes is your book. 
And Song of Solomon is a theology of love, passion, and marriage. I did 13 messages on Song of Solomon uh, a number of years ago in 2016, I think it was. Uh, I'm going to try to pull that all together in one message, a theology of love, passion, and marriage, because these poetic books are dealing with the issues of our heart and our soul, suffering and worship, um, meaning, and, and how we handle that in, in every era, area of our life. That's what these books are addressing. Today, we're going to look at the book of Psalms. There's 150 psalms, and I can't cover all of them. I'm not even going to try, but I'm going to try to give you a setting and equip you to read the psalms as well as I possibly can. And the psalms are important, and everybody recognizes that. Most of you probably already realize, oh yeah, I like the psalms. This is going to be good. Let me just read you a couple of things. Um, Danny Hayes from that book, the the Baker Bible Handbook, says this. Most people love the book of psalms, discovering psalms early in in their Christian walk, and cherishing these ancient songs throughout their lives. You probably feel the same way, and the reasons are obvious. In the Psalms, we find comfort and encouragement when we are discouraged. In the Psalms, we find just the right words for praising our Lord and rejoicing over what he has done for us. The psalmist expresses our feelings and our emotions, but somehow he just seems to do it to say it better than we can. Because it's, it's inspired language of heart and soul, and and if you've read the Psalms, you probably connect with it in that way. And you just, it is that. This says it like I wish I, I had said it. And it helps you put words to it. William Van Gameren, who's got a huge commentary on the Psalms, he says this, The book of Psalms is God's prescription for a complacent church. Because through it, he reveals how great, wonderful, magnificent, wise, and utterly awe-inspiring he is. The book of Psalms really presents all that God is, creator and redeemer, <laughs> And, it's, it, and it puts that in, in words of our heart, and it sets that in the context of our very lives. Um, one of the older commentaries uh, by A.F. Kirkpatrick, he says this, From the earliest times, the Psalter has been the church's manual, in prayer and pr- manual of prayer and praise in public worship. Um, this morning, we sang four songs. Every one of them were psalms. By the way, um, sidebar. The whole collection is Psalms, open to the book of Psalms. But if you're only doing one, it's Psalm 2. It's not Psalms 2. It's Psalms 3 and 4, or Psalms 121 through 126. The whole book is Psalms, but it's a Psalm, Psalm 7. Same thing with Revelation. By the way, it's Revelation, not Revelations. Okay, I'm going to step out of my pet peeve and back into the message. Another old commentator... um, and I'm probably only using this commentator because I love the drawing of what he's wearing, and I almost wore this this morning. Um, (laughs) Stuart Peroni says, No single book of Scripture, not even of the New Testament, has perhaps ever taken such a hold on the heart of Christendom. This book of Psalms is a heart book. Um, and, And you probably know that. You're probably always, yeah, it is. I've got a favorite psalm, or there's psalms that trouble me, or songs I go back to again and again. Um, Now I'm going to give you another introduction to the book of Psalms. You're going to think that I'm telling you about our family vacation. I'm not. I'm introducing the book of Psalms. But for the first time in 37 years, Dawn and I went on a two-week vacation. It was fantastic. We loved it. We got on I-40. We started driving west on I-40. Uh, when we got to Albuquerque, we went northwest, and we went to five different places. Uh, we went to Antelope Canyon, and then we went to the big, the mighty five in Utah, um, Arches National Park, Canyonlands, 
uh, Capitol Reef, Bryce, and Zion. I want to show you some pictures, okay? These are all pictures I took with my phone. These are not, um, these are not um, off the internet. These are, I mean, I really did take these pictures just with my phone. But let me just show you a couple of things here. Um, this is Antelope Canyon. It's a slot canyon. Um, it's right outside of Page, New Mexico. Um, unbelievable colors in there. It was great. The one in the, in the middle, you know, if you get down the right way, it looks like a heart. I mean, the colors were just great. I've got a thousand pictures. If you want to see them, I'll show you. But the Antelope Canyon was just overwhelming with the color and the beauty. It was just fantastic. We left Page and we went to Moab where Arches National Park is. Um, this was just great. These arches were great. There's this place called Balance Rock that was amazing there. I really like the picture on the left. The beauty of that picture, as well as the scenery, are fantastic. Um, but this was just a fantastic place. Um, and um, <laughs> this little delicate arch was a bit of a hike. I'm, getting, I'm having surgery tomorrow morning on my knee. Getting to some of these places was um, difficult. Uh, the next day, we went through Canyonlands National Park. The one on the left there is called Mesa Arch. You look through the arch down into the canyons. The, the can, it was just great. We, we loved it. It was great to, to get through there. Then we drove through Capitol Reef. and Cap, all, all five of these parks just look so different, but they're all right there in southern Utah. We had a great time driving through Capitol Reef. It was a little bit rainy that day, and it's the perfect day because um, it's... Um, it's, it's not a park where you do a lot of hikes. We got out and, and hiked a little bit. By the way, um, Claudia Courtway helped us with this. There's great peach pie in Capitol Reef. Um, get the peach pie in Capitol Reef. It's, it's amazing. Uh, we went from there to Bryce Canyon. This is where the hoodoos are. Unbelievable. Just, I mean, you've never seen anything like it. It was amazing to just go from park to park and see how really, really different it was. But these little stacked things, they're called hoodoos. Um, I love this picture here of just the tenacity of this tree. <laughs> it is going to make it. Um, it is, it, I mean, you, that tree's been through a lot, um, and it's still standing and flourishing. Uh, we drove from Bryce down this un, really beautiful highway, scenic Highway 12. It wasn't even on my, um, my GPS. My, my GPS kept trying to tell me to turn around, and we wouldn't. Uh, it was great. Um, and we went to Zion National Park. I, this was, again, very, very different. You're hiking right in the middle of it. Um, the picture on the left is called the Patriarchs. That's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, really fantastic. The one on the right, a little sobering, that's called the Great White Throne. Um, all of this was really fantastic. We had a great time. Now, you may be thinking, I just told you about my vacation. I'm really trying to illustrate Psalms. How many of you have been to any of these places? How many of you have been? Okay, lots of hands are up. Those pictures remind you, and they go, yeah, I know what that was like. These pictures remind you of what it's like. If you've never been to any of these places, maybe these pictures are going, oh, I want to go. I had a number of people after first hour come up and ask and just say, oh, where did you go? And Dawn's got notes on all this if you want to see it. Um, but gosh, just it was amazing uh, to go there. And maybe these pictures, maybe somebody else's experience will motivate you to go. And I think that's what the Psalms do. If you've experienced God, who he is, what he's done, you've experienced going to him in the low times, the book of Psalms is a reminder of, oh yes, I remember that. Or it helps you put expression to it. And if you haven't experienced that, if you haven't deeply engaged your heart and your soul with God, the Psalms can be a motivation to say, I want to know God this way. 
I encourage you to read the Psalms. And either way, it's a guide. It's a guide for where you've already been or a guide for where you want to go as you engage with the heart of God. That's what the Psalms do. The Psalms are like a a, a beautiful rendition of people who've experienced God in wonderful ways, and it helps you connect in that way. Now, in order to introduce the book of Psalms, I need to define a few things. The first thing I'm going to define is worship, okay? Often we think that worship, as you come to the worship service, I went to worship, or you, you think of it in terms of singing songs. Worship, biblically defined, involves two things, sacrifice and praise, always. Sacrifice and praise. The sacrifice part is I engage with who I am, and that is I'm a sinner, and I can't be in relationship with God. I can't worship him. I can't be connected to him on my own. I'm a sinner. There has to be a sacrifice. And in the Old Testament, that sacrifice was pictured through an animal. For you and I, that sacrifice was Jesus Christ done once for all. But when we recognize who we are, in order to enjoy the relationship with God, we have to begin by acknowledging there had to be a sacrifice for me to get there. Worship always starts with sacrifice. I know who I am, and I'm unworthy to be in God's presence and to worship him. But worship also emerges into praise. And praise is the expression of when you enjoy that relationship that's established on the basis of sacrifice, and you engage with who God is. He's awesome. I'm a sinner. He's awesome. I'm a sinner. I need sacrifice. He's awesome. And I will praise him, and I will, I will talk about him. And that's what I want to talk about now. What is praise? Praise involves two things, enjoyment and declaration. It's the enjoying of the relationship. I, in, I experience God. I experience his grace. I experience his provision. I experience his character. I experience his blessing. It is whatever it is, I experience his heart. Um, when you experience God and you enjoy that, and then you declare it and you share it with somebody else, okay? So here's what worship is. Worship is, I know I'm a sinner and I can't even be in relationship with God. There has to be a sacrifice, And because there's a sacrifice, I can be in relationship with God. I enjoy that, and that erupts into, I'm going to praise, and I'm going to praise God out of that. That's what worship is. That's how worship works. Now, let me say one thing about prayer, praise. Something is not fully enjoyed until it's shared with another. You don't fully enjoy something until you share it with somebody else. Last night at our house, we're watching the hockey game because we're from up north and we watch hockey, okay? So just get over it. We were watching hockey at our house. And numerous times, we stopped the show. We got everybody back in the room who wasn't there. I was grilling some hamburgers. We got everybody back in the room to watch the replay of that goal when he wrapped around and and did a wraparound goal. Um, When there was something going, we enjoyed the game. And whoever was watching and saw it would get everybody. And because you enjoy it, you want to share it with everybody else. You've had that experience. Um, something's not fully enjoyed until you can share it with somebody else. So here's worship. I know I'm a sinner. I can only have relationship with God because um, I can have that relationship with God through sacrifice. I want to praise him and tell others about that. Um, C.S. Lewis captures this really well in his little book on the Psalms called um, Reflections on the Psalms. Really good. He, He captures it. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise is not praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. 
It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone about how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of a road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and to have to keep silent because the people with, uh, with you care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. The Scottish Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. God wants us to enjoy him. That can only take place on the basis of sacrifice because you can't earn it. You're not worthy to be in relationship with him. But because of sacrifice, you can be. And when you enjoy that relationship, the completion of the enjoyment is expressing it and telling someone else about the wonder of that enjoyment. If you've been around here for very long at all, you've heard me say this. The simplest definition of praise that I can give you is Praise is making God the subject of your sentences. Stop talking about yourself. Just talk about God. Um, God is great. God is awesome. God came through in this way. God gave Dawn and I some little gifts along the way in our vacation, not only the grandeur of his creation, which we were just immersed in, but little things along the way, like when we went to um, Sweet Cravings Bakery and Sandwich Shop in Moab, Utah, And we walked in and we just said, hey, we're going to go see Moab. Uh, We're going to see Arches National Park tomorrow. What would you guys do? And the girl says, you wait here. The girl in the back is the one you need to talk to. We ordered our sandwiches. We sat down. She came out. She had it all written out for us. And she said, here's what you do. And she said, in fact, don't go wait in the line. At 4 o'clock, they shut all that down. You go at 4 o'clock. You can get in free. Sun doesn't go down until 8.30. We had the park to ourselves. And we know exactly where to go. It was fantastic. God was so good to bless us with that all along the way. Aldo at Whip's Tail um, Restaurant in Zion, Utah. This guy's great. God, God gifted us with this thing. Praising God is just making him the subject of his sin. God gifted us. God was good to us. God was displaying his grandeur. That, that's what praise is. So understand worship, sacrifice, and praise. Understand praise, it's enjoyment and declaration. And the declaration is stop talking about yourself long enough to just talk about God. Tell somebody about what God is, is like, how he was good, and make him the subject. Make him the thing you're really talking about, not you. So now let's move into some other things. And again, I can't cover all the Psalms, but I'm going to try to orient you the best that I can. Um, the first thing is, who, who composed the Psalms? Well, the reality is individuals, some of whom we know, like David and Moses, Solomon, sons of Korah, they composed a psalm to be used at the tabernacle, later the temple, during their worship services, and they were used repeatedly, and they kept them at the sanctuary. Okay? So, so someone along the way writes a psalm, and the good ones, I don't know any better way to say it, the, good, the inspired ones, maybe. Okay? The inspired ones were collected into the sanctuary, and they kept them around. Now, we know who some of these people are. David writes 73 of them. Um, the sons of Korah write a bunch. There are other people. Um, Moses writes one, and, and in fact, Moses becomes one of the ways we can date it. I'll show you that in just a minute. 
but essentially, here's, here's what happens. Leviticus 23 gives us um, the worship schedule for the year for the Israelites. Okay? Three times a year, the Israelites came up to, um, to um, Jerusalem to worship. In the spring, they came up. At the very beginning of the barley harvest, the barley harvest was just starting. They came up for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, during which they celebrated Passover, their redemption out of bondage in Egypt. And they gave an offering of the first fruits, the first little thing that came out of the ground. They gave a little offering of that in anticipation of more to come. By the way, Christ fulfilled all that with his first coming. He, he's our Passover. He redeems us out of bondage. Um, he cleans all of the leaven out of our life. And, and he's the first one, literally, he's the first one who came out of the ground, and all of us are going to come out of the ground later. He's the first fruits of the resurrection, and he's the symbol. He fulfilled all of that with his resurrection, okay? Fifty days later, they come back in the summer. It's now the middle of the summer. It's the wheat harvest. Um, and what they do is they take some of the wheat that they have, and they make two loaves of bread, and they offer that. They make something, and this is a big celebration. Um, they make something and give it to the temple. Christ fulfilled this at Pentecost, which on the day of Pentecost, when it was completely fulfilled, what Christ made through his redemption, his death, his resurrection, what he made was the church. And so on the day of Pentecost, he offers to God the church. So in Christ's first coming, um, through his death, he fulfills the beginning of it, Passover. His resurrection allows him to produce what he gave to Christ 50 days later on Pentecost, or what he gave to God 50 days later on, on Pentecost, the church. We are still awaiting the second coming, which is pictured in the fall festival when they came back up now to offer fruits and nuts. Um, and it was uh, signaled by the blowing of trumpets where everyone was gathered into Jerusalem. The day of atonement when, where sin was cast out they celebrated their redemption in Passover, but now the Day of Atonement, later on in the fall, the Day of Atonement is when the animal is run out of the city with his, the sin, the symbol of the sin, tied around his neck. That is still yet to come for us because sin hasn't been totally done away with. I don't know if you recognize this, but you're still a sinner. Um, but there will be a day when all that will be put away. Sin, death, hell, it's all going to be cast into the lake of fire. And they lived in booths gathering to live with God. And that's what we're looking forward to. That's the second coming. Um, Christ fulfills all of this. But in all of these three times they were coming up, people were writing psalms. And they were writing psalms about things they'd experienced that year. Maybe just uh, an ex- experiencing God's grandeur. And they write a psalm. And they bring it and maybe they ask the choir to sing it at the, at the temple. The good ones they kept around. Um, and, and eventually they are gathered together. And so then the question becomes... Who compiled all of this? Well, at some point, the individual psalms were gathered into five collections. You'll notice if you're reading through your Bible, you'll see the five collections. You'll get more on that in just a minute. These were eventually shaped into the present form with a two-psalm introduction highlighting important themes and a five-psalm conclusion was added calling the whole creation to praise God. So individual psalms are written. Um, They're collected at the sanctuary Eventually, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they're collected into five books. Once they're collected into five books, they put a, a two-fold introduction with, with Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, Torah and King, and then a conclusion at the end, the last five psalms that call the whole creation to praise the Lord. Now, the best way that I can, can communicate how all of this fits together 
is by showing you a video. I hope you're, you're watching some of these videos already. But this is the Bible Project video on the book of Psalms. I want you to pay attention to all that they say here and pay attention to... The book of Psalms, all this. it's a collection of 150 ancient Hebrew poems, songs, and prayers that come from all different periods in Israel's history. Many of these poems are connected with King David, 73, actually, and he was known as a poet and a harp player. But there are many different authors behind these poems. There's the poems of Asaph, or from the sons of Korah, and some are from other worship leaders in the temple. Even Solomon and Moses have their own poems, and nearly one-third of these are anonymous. Now, many of these poems came to be used by the choirs that sang in Israel's temple, but the book of Psalms is actually not a hymn book. At some point in the period after Israel's exile to Babylon, these ancient poems were gathered together and intentionally arranged into the book of Psalms before us. And it has a very unique design and message that you're not going to notice unless you read it from beginning to end. Now to see how the book of Psalms is designed, it's actually most helpful to start at the end. The book concludes with five poems of praise to the God of Israel, and each one begins and ends with the word hallelujah, which is Hebrew for a command to tell a group of people to praise Yah, which is short for the divine name Yahweh. Now, that's a really nice five-part arrangement, and it looks like someone's giving us a conclusion here to the book. So, it invites the question, does the book have any other signs of intentional design? If you pay attention to the headings of the poems, you'll notice that at five places, your Bible translators have the heading book one, book two, book three, four, and five at various points, and that these divide the book into five large sections. Now, the reason for this is is that the final poem in each of those sections have a very similar ending that looks like an editorial edition. It reads something like, May the Lord, the God of Israel, be blessed forever and ever. Amen and amen. So the book has a conclusion. It has an internal organization into five main parts. And so the natural place to go from here is now the beginning, to look for an introduction. And what do we find? Psalms 1 and 2. Two, which stand outside of book one because most of the poems in book one are linked to David except Psalms one and two, which are anonymous. Psalm one celebrates how blessed the person is who meditates on the Torah, prayerfully reading it day and night and then obeying it. Now the word Torah simply means teaching and more specifically it came to refer to the five books of Moses that begin the Old Testament. And here actually the word seems to be used with both meanings in mind, which explains why it has five main parts. The book of Psalms is being offered as a new Torah that will teach God's people the lifelong practice of prayer as they strive to obey God's commands given in the first Torah. Psalm 2 is a poetic reflection on God's promise to King David from 2 Samuel chapter 7, that one day a messianic king would come and establish God's kingdom over the world, defeat evil and rebellion among the nations. Now Psalm 2 concludes by saying that all those who take refuge in the messianic king will be blessed precisely the word used to open Psalm 1. And so together, these two poems tell us that the book of Psalms is designed to be the prayer book of God's people as they strive to be faithful to the commands of the Torah as they hope and wait for the future messianic kingdom. Now with these two themes introduced, we can start to see how the smaller books have been designed as well around these two ideas. So for example, book one has right at the center a collection of poems, Psalms 15 through 24, that opens and closes with a call to covenant faithfulness. 
And then, Psalm 16 to 18, we find a depiction of David as a model of this kind of faithfulness. So he calls out to God to deliver him, and God elevates him as king. Now, in the corresponding set of poems, Psalms 20 to 23, the David of the past has become an image of the messianic king of the future, who will also call out to God, he will be delivered, and then given a kingdom over the nations. And then right at the center of this collection is a poem, Psalm 19, dedicated to praising God for the Torah. So here we go. The two themes from Psalms 1 and 2 are bound together tightly here. Book 2 opens with two poems that are united in their hope for a future return to the temple in Zion. And this is an image closely associated with the hope of the Messianic kingdom. Then Book 2 closes with a poem that depicts the future reign of the Messianic king over all of the nations. This poem's really amazing because it echoes all these other passages from the prophets about the messianic kingdom. And it concludes by saying that this king's reign will bring about the fulfillment of God's ancient promise to Abraham to bring God's blessing to all of the nations. Book three also concludes with a poem reflecting on God's promise to David, but this time in light of Israel's exile. So the poet remembers how God said he would never abandon the line of David. But now he's looking at Israel's rebellion and its result in destruction and exile and the downfall of the line of David. And so the poet ends by asking God to never forget his promise to David. Book four is designed to respond to this crisis of exile. So the opening poem returns us back to Israel's with a prayer of Moses. And he does what he did on Mount Sinai after the golden calf incident, which is to call upon God to show mercy. The center of book four is dominated by a group of poems that announce that the Lord, the God of Israel, reigns as the true king of the world, and that all creation, trees, mountains, rivers, are all summoned to celebrate that future day when God will bring his justice and kingdom over all the world. Book five opens with a series of poems that affirm that God hears the cries of his people and will one day send the future king to defeat evil and bring God's kingdom. This book also contains two larger collections, one called the Hollow and the other called the Songs of Ascents. Each one of these collections concludes with a poem about the future messianic kingdom. And these two collections together, they sustain the hope for a future Exodus-like act of God to redeem his people. And then, right between them is Psalm 119. It's the longest poem in the book. It's an alphabet poem. Each line begins with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it explores the wonder and the gift of the Torah as God's word to his people. So here we go. The themes from Psalm 1 and 2, Torah and Messiah, combine all together here in book 5, which brings us all the way back to that five-poem conclusion. In the center poem, Psalm 148, all creation is summoned to praise the God of Israel because he has, quote, raised up a horn for his people. Now the horn here, it's a metaphor of a bull's horn raised in victory. And this image echoes back to the same image used in Hannah's song for Samuel chapter 2, but also to the earlier Psalm 132. The horn is a symbol for the future messianic king and his victory over evil. It's a fitting conclusion to this amazing book. Now, here's one more thing that you are likely going to miss if you don't read this book in order. There's lots of different kinds of poems in the book of Psalms, but they all basically fall into two big categories, either poems of lament or poems of praise. Poems of lament express pain, confusion, and anger about how horrible the world is and how horrible the things are happening to the poet. And so these poems draw attention to what's wrong in the world, and they ask God to do something about it. There's a lot of these 
in the book, which tells us something important, that lament is an appropriate response to the evil that we see in our world. But what you'll notice is that lament poems predominate earlier in the book, in books one through three. But pay attention, because you'll see praise poems occasionally, too. Praise poems are poems of joy and celebration, and they draw attention to what's good in the world, and they retell stories of what God has done in our lives and thank God for it. In books four and five, you'll notice that praise poems come to outnumber lament poems, and it all culminates in that five-part hallelujah conclusion. So this shift from lament to praise, this is profound, and it tells us something about the nature of prayer. As we hope for the messianic kingdom, as the book teaches us to do, this will create tension for us as we look out on the tragic state of our world and of our lives. And so the Psalms teach us not to ignore the pain of our lives, but at the same time, biblical faith is forward-looking, looking to the promise of God's future messianic kingdom. And so Torah and Messiah, lament and praise, faith and hope. That's what the book of Psalms is all about. That's pretty amazing. I want to point out two things. One, I don't know why they make a point that it's not the hymn book other than that they're emphasizing um, prayer. I do think it's prayer, but I do think it's how you express your praise to God. The other thing, and they correct this in the picture I'm going to show you, bulls don't have udders. So anyways, for those of you who noticed that, um, I I am going to review just a little bit here. The whole book of Psalms begins with this introduction that's the two major themes, Torah and King. The word Torah means teachings. Live by the teachings as you're waiting for the King to come and redeem, which happened first coming, and to set things right, second coming. Live by the teachings of Scripture as you wait for the King. And then there's the experiences of God's people in five different collections that all go together to say this is what this looks like. And um, it concludes with this repetition of hallelujah. Like he said, hallelujah is a command. Hallelujah is the command, praise God. You're not actually praising God until you, not just saying hallelujah doesn't praise God. Making God the subject of a sentence. God is great. God has done this. God is um, omniscient. God is powerful. God is um, awesome. Those kind of words are praise. Just saying hallelujah is not. And then I want you to highlight as well, because we're going to talk about this. The Psalms are either lament uh, it's the world's a mess. That's what I see. Or their praise. I see God's hand in all of this. I'm going to break that down in just a minute. Um, where were these Psalms assembled? Well, boy, it's over such a vast period of time. The oldest Psalm, Psalm 90 was written by Moses, probably in 1446 BC. The latest Psalm was probably Psalm 126 written by, we don't know who, sometime after the exile in 538. So, I mean, you can see it's about a thousand year span of all of these individual psalms being left at the sanctuary and then brought together. Now, why do we have these things? (laughs) Why do we have it in this way? It's not a book you normally read beginning to end. The psalms contain the inspired collection, and I would encourage you, When they were writing those psalms, they were inspired, and the collection of it is inspired, and the editorial work to put two at the beginning and five at the end, 
All of that with the little conclusions at the end of each book, all of that is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the Psalms contain the inspired collection of Israel's praises and prayers that reflect their experience walking with God as his chosen people, as well as providing a guide for believers of all time to engage their heart with the heart of Yahweh. Again, this is heart language. This is heart stuff. And we have it as a guide, a reminder, a a way to say, oh, this person puts better words to it than I could. Oh, that captures my heart. Or there's something they're experiencing that I'm not. I long for it. Danny Hayes, again, in the Baker Bible Handbook says this, While the Psalms do inevitably address doctrine and moral behavior, their primary purpose is not focused on teaching doctrine or moral behavior. Their primary purpose is to give us divinely inspired models or patterns of how to pray to God, how to praise God, and how to meditate on God in response to all that God has done for us. Thus, it is important to remember that most of the Psalms are addressed to God, not us. They enable us to express, our, uh, to express to God our deepest emotions and needs, especially in the crisis times of life. If anything, the book of Psalms should get your eyes off yourself and get your eyes on God. And all of us need that more and more in our lives. So how is this all put together? Um, again, it's simple to Psalm introduction. Live by the Torah. Blessed is the man who meditates on his Torah day and night. As you wait for the king, Psalm 2, kiss the king. All these collections put together and concluding with five psalms at the end. Now, um, I need to say one brief word. There's so much more I could say about this. One brief word about Hebrew poetry. In Hebrew poetry, they don't rhyme words, okay? You just don't do that in a language like Hebrew because there's endings on the words. You'll hear it. I'm going to... I think I'll have time to read Psalm 150 in Hebrew. And you'll hear the ending is all the same. It's not because they're rhyming. It's because the word he is at the end of it. Uh, Praise him. Praise him. Um, They don't rhyme sounds. They rhyme ideas. So often in the Psalms, in these poetic books, you get one line and another line that repeats it because they're rhyming the ideas rather than the words. Um, Now I'm going to talk about the shape of the Psalms. This is, I think, the most helpful thing I can do for you is to let you know that the Psalms tend to focus either on lament or complaint or praise and celebration. And the breakdown is 50-50, okay? It's really 70-80, but it's really about down the... So about half of your time, when you're praying, you should be complaining. I mean, look around at your life. Look Look at you. Look at me. There's a lot to complain about. I'm not who I want to be. The world's not what, I, what I'd like for it to be. About half of the Psalms are complaining to God. I don't see you. Where are you? And then praying for him to do something about it. The other half are celebrating the joy of that. I want to make a brief application point here. God can handle, and he expects and provided you with a guide, half of the Psalms. He expects you to share your complaints with him. It's a part of praising him. A part of being in relationship with God is complaining. A part of being in relationship with my wife is complaining because there's things that aren't right. And there's complaining. Now I'm, I'm seeing a bunch of arms like, yes, I am in real relationship with you. Um, but when you're in a relationship with somebody, it doesn't always go right. And if you're in relationship, you talk about it. It's a part of praising him. God can handle that. Stop avoiding it. If you just put a smiley face on everything, God's looking at you going, I gave you half the Psalms to help you out here. You're just pretending. It ain't all that good. So engage with your life. Now, 
the praise psalms break into two different kinds, and that's what I want to teach you right now. Um, there are essentially three types of psalms. I don't care if you remember the names. I just want you to know the, the types. Okay? There are descriptive praises that praise God for who he is. Laments that complain because they say, I don't see God's hand in all this. And then there are declarative praise psalms that praise God for what he has done. Who he is, I don't see it, and what he does. Okay? So let me talk about them. They all have a particular shape or form, and these are not outlines, they're elements, okay? Um, by the way, all this is out on a chart at the Connection Center. I'm going to show it to you in just a minute. But, but the descriptive praise psalms have these elements. They may cycle through them again and again and again. They may rearrange them in a bunch of different ways. But they start with a call to praise that says, hallelujah, praise God. And everybody join me in praising God. Then the cause for praise, his greatness and his grace, Maybe a specific illustration, which might move them into a declarative praise of here's the specific thing he did. And then it concludes by calling you back to praise again. And then often the last word is just hallelujah, praise God. This is about the character of God. It's praising his character. This is really the orientation of our life. Yes, we know God is great. We know God is good. The focus of it is that he is our creator and our redeemer. These are descriptive praise psalms. Here's what I want you to know. It's praising God for who he is, okay? Praising God for who he is, his character. Then you move to laments, okay? Laments, again, have these elements to them. They're not always in the the same order. Psalm 13 is almost exactly this. But a lament begins with this introduction, Oh God, I'm crying to you for help. And here's what's going on. My, My enemies have surrounded me. I'm almost dying. Then the complaint. Here's what they're doing. Here's how I'm experiencing And where are you? It's a they, I, you. Then there's usually a confession of trust. Here's my problem, but I'm trusting you. That's why I'm praying to you. And that will maybe be a little short descriptive praise because of who you are or a declarative praise because of what you've done in the past. And then he actually gets to his prayer. He says, here, save, punish people who need it. And then he says, because. Here's here's why I want you to answer this. And often that because is what changes our prayer. Um, we often want things that, that when we actually pray through them, we realize that's ah, not what we need. God's got something different for, my, for me. And then at the end, there's a vow of praise um, that is, um, it's sometimes because God did answer, but sometimes you don't know. And he's saying, when you do answer, I will praise you. This, by the way, is all about not the character of God, but the absence of God. This is when there's disorientation in your life, and it really focuses on complaint but trust. It's not just griping. It is, I'm griping, but I trust you. That's why I'm talking to you. The last category, um, well, and some of them can be individual or communal, and they're either open. You don't know whether it's been answered or Maybe it was answered and they praise God for that. The last category is the descriptive praises. This is praising God for his work. This is for what he has done. Not who he is, character, but what he's done, his work. And this really is going to reorient us. It's going to say, yeah, but I saw him do this, and that reorients me back to what God is doing. The focus here is on his redemption, his protection, his deliverance, and his justice, because he does these things. He redeemed me. He protected me. He delivered me. He took justice on, uh, on the enemies. Again, these are not outlines. They're elements. 
All of these are arranged. And I've got a chart out at the Connection Center that puts all these together. It's got the three columns of the descriptive praises, uh, the laments, and the declarative praises. What I've done is on the back of the psalm chart, okay, I've got all of those listed from top to bottom, 1 through 150, it moves down. But they're all put in the right category there. So I'm going to start off with the descriptive praises on the left-hand side, but you're going to be a few down into it. I can't see. It's not, well, Psalm 2 is a descriptive praise. Psalm 8 is a descriptive praise. Um, and, and they focus either on kind of a hymn in general of just in general, God is great, or because he's the king or because he's reigning from Zion or because um, he's promised a king to us. Um, all of those focusing on who he is. Then there are the laments, and some of them are pure laments, are, are more formal laments because they, they focus more on the lament. Some of them are songs of trust because they focus more on the trust. A, a, a song of, of lament is mostly lament and a little bit of trust. Sometimes there's just a little bit of lament and a lot of trust. Um, they all fall, they can be individual or communal, and again, they can be either open or heard. You don't, and some of them I have listed in the middle. I have no idea whether the, this prayer was answered or not. Uh, the vow of praise might actually be a vow. Um, and then you have all of the descriptive praises, some of them individual, some of them um, uh, communal. And, and when you're looking through this, maybe the way to do this is to get this chart and just go, hey, I need a descriptive praise now and go find one. Or, you know what, I'm feeling lamentous. <laughs> Uh, and go find a lament that puts some words to the things that you're feeling. So, what's the message of the book of Psalms? Regardless of the circumstances of life, God is interested in you, wants to hear from you and about your experiences. When life is not as we want it to be, we talk to God about it because we're in relationship with him. When life is good, we praise him, and when he answers, we praise him. This is the experience of Israel as they walked with God. It is our experience put in poetic, beautiful, heart-soul-warming language. And it gives us a guide for that. It gives us a motivation to move into that. The book of Psalms, Dan Estes says, was the hymnal of ancient Israel. The comp- this compilation of 150 songs reveals how the people of God turned to Yahweh in full range of their life experiences. From tearful laments to jubilant shouts of praise, the songs reflect the emotions of Old Testament believers as they approached Yahweh. For the people of God of every age, the psalm service prompts as patterns in drawing near to him. Danny Hayes says, So whether we are happy and rejoicing in the Lord, are struggling in despair and doubt, the Psalms enable us to talk to God about it. Usually after meditating on one of the Psalms and praying to God with the Psalm, we find ourselves encouraged, uplifted, and strengthened. What a wonderful and powerful collection of songs this book is. So what do you do with that? Well, let me just orient you to where this fits. This is God's hymn book. It's the record of God's people, and it teaches us how to praise God in all of these circumstances of life. Now, it's not ranged in big groups. They're scattered all over the place. But it gives you a soulful emotional connection to, to our life and our heart connected to God. And it's a beautiful expression of the heart of worship throughout life. So what should we believe? It's really simple. God is great and God is good and he always has been. He was great and he was good to them and he's great and he's good to us. Sometimes we can see it, sometimes we can't. God is active in our lives and has been throughout history. The people of God have always used this way of thinking I'm oriented to who God is. I'm disoriented because I don't see him. And I'm reoriented because he came through. It's how, it's how God's people have always lived. 
And God can handle our cry when we cry out to him, as Psalm 103 would say, out of the depths. When you're in the depths, cry out to him. He can handle that. How should we behave? I'm going to put it real simply. Descriptive praise. Praise God for who he is. Make him the subject of your sentence and talk about who he is. Declarative praise. Praise God for what he's done. Make God the subject of your sentences and talk to him about what he's done and tell people what he has done. And in lament, praise God for what he will do, even though you don't see it. So what are next steps? (laughs) Orient yourself to God with descriptive praise. Just make that a habit of your life. You're orienting yourself to God as you describe who he is. Honestly, bring your heart to God with open hands and proper lament. And proper lament is not just complaining. It's complaining, saying why you trust God, asking for something specific. And reorient yourself to God when he comes through with declarative praise. Uh, I am going to end by reminding you that the word hallelujah is a command. You don't praise God by saying hallelujah. You're commanding people to praise God. Um, you're praising God when you make him the subject of your sentences. But I'm going to read a a slightly adapted version um, of Psalm 150, six verses in Hebrew. Listen to this. Hallelujah. 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 Hallelujah repeatedly it just says, praise the Lord, folks. Praise him, praise him, praise God. Praise him with symbols, praise him in, in, the, in the mountains, in the valleys. Praise him everywhere. Praise God. Lord, grant us eyes to see and hearts to embrace and appreciate your character. Give us courage to approach you with all the burdens of our hearts openly and honestly and guide us gently or more sternly when it's necessary to accept your activity in our lives. You are great. You are good. Thank you for accepting and loving us and never allowing us to remain the same. Amen.